You're listening to This Month in HIV, the body's monthly podcast discussion about the latest, most important developments in HIV. For more information on this podcast, including a full transcript, visit us on the web at www.thebody.com slash HIV month. This is Bonnie Goldman, Editorial Director of TheBody.com, and I'm pleased to welcome you to This Month in HIV. In this month's podcast, we're focusing on one of the most exciting topics in HIV, the cure. Up until now, we've never been able to say that a person infected with HIV has been cured. As I said, up until now. You see, in 2006, something incredible happened in a hospital in Berlin. It was there, thanks to a unique and risky bone marrow transplant, that a man may have become the very first person ever to be fully cured of HIV. This man's name has not been released. He's only known as the Berlin patient, but we know he's an HIV-positive American in his 40s who has been working in Berlin. In 2006, he was diagnosed with acute leukemia. In an attempt to treat his leukemia and his HIV, the man's doctor, Dr. Gerald Hutter, arranged for him to receive a bone marrow transplant from a very special donor. Ever since that transplant, the Berlin patient has had an undetectable viral load, although he hasn't been on HIV treatment since before the transplant. The man has generously allowed scientists to take almost every possible biopsy and test, including the most ultra-sensitive HIV tests available. But HIV has not been detected anywhere in his body. It's now almost three years since this operation, and HIV still seems not to have reemerged. His story inspires new hope that some sort of gene therapy may be the key to an HIV cure. Dr. Jeffrey Lawrence, the chief scientist at AMFAR, the Foundation for AIDS Research, has become the main contact in the United States regarding the Berlin patient and he remains in close contact with Dr. Hutter, the Berlin patient's doctor. In September of 2008, he also organized a fascinating think tank of top HIV scientists to discuss the patient's case. They all agreed that the patient is functionally cured. In this interview, Dr. Lawrence tells us a little bit about that meeting and about the Berlin patient's amazing story. Welcome, Dr. Lawrence. Thank you. Let's start from the very beginning. Who is the so-called Berlin patient? I've been following this individual from the interests of research, trying to have what happened to this patient on replicated in others for a couple of years now. This is a 40-year-old gentleman who's actually from Seattle, from the United States, who is living in Germany. He had had HIV since about the age of 30, was successfully treated with a cocktail of drugs on doing very well with no detectable virus in his blood. His T-cell counts were over 400. He was basically a poster person for the way we can treat HIV disease now. He was doing fine, no complications. Then, unfortunately, he developed a kind of leukemia. We call it acute myelogenous leukemia, or AML, that typically requires a bone marrow transplant. He developed that leukemia in March of 2007, and he went to his hematologist in Berlin, Dr. Hutter, and was treated with standard drugs that we treat this leukemia with. Seven months later, he had a relapse of his leukemia, and that's not uncommon. That happens maybe 50% of the time. 
This time he was treated again with the standard way we treat patients with leukemia and relapse, but he was also given what we call a stem cell transplant. It's like a bone marrow transplant, except instead of taking cells quite painfully and under anesthesia from some donor's bone marrow, we just take it from their blood. What was unusual about the particular transplant done in this patient is rather than doing it in the ordinary way that we would normally do for a person who walked in with or without HIV uh, and leukemia, is that we would go through the worldwide registry of people who had agreed to donate stem cells or bone marrow. There are about 13 million people who are on this computerized donor list now. The Berlin patient's physician went through the 13 million people and found 232 people who were identical tissue type matches for this patient. Any one of those 232, if they agreed to come in and donate their stem cells, presumably would have been an excellent match for this patient. But with the patient's approval, the Berlin doctor had a great idea, and he said, why don't we try to do something a little better than that? Why don't we think about curing not only your leukemia with the bone marrow transplant, but also your HIV? And the thought there was, let's take all 232 people and screen them for a genetic mutation which would make those cells resistant to getting infected with virtually all types of HIV that we know about. This is a relatively uh, infrequent, I wouldn't say rare condition. It's found in somewhere between 1% and 2% of white Americans and uh, Western Europeans, about 4% of people from Scandinavian countries, in no Africans, African Americans, in no people from Asia or Southeast Asia, which tells you something about the genetics of racial splits way back when. What does this genetic mutation do and to? It's, it's called Delta 32 CCR5, and it was discovered about 10 years ago. In fact, one of the groups that discovered it did so with funding from AMFAR, the foundation for AIDS research that I work with. And it's known that if you're lucky enough to have this mutation, this Delta 32 CCR5, from both your parents, something we call homozygous technically, you are resistant to getting infected by most forms of HIV. This transplant was done, and it was successful. About a year later, the patient had a relapse of his leukemia. Now, in this time, the, the patient had no viral load and had good T cells. When his antiviral drugs were stopped, his virus didn't come back, and his T cells remained high. And that's the miracle of this patient. Could you explain what does a bone transplant do? What you're trying to do is kill off all of the leukemic cells in a person's body, and leukemia comes from cancerous white blood cells. And the process of killing off those cells means treating the person with as many drugs that are toxic to blood-forming cells in the person's body as the person will tolerate. And this person was 40 years old, can tolerate things very well. He was given radiation therapy to his whole body. He was given two immune-suppressive drugs. He was given a serum prepared in a rabbit, immunized with human T-cells, kind of an antibody to kill off T-cells in the person's body. And he was also given a multitude of drugs that can not only kill leukemia cells, but can also kill immune cells. So this person basically is an empty vessel now. All of his own stem cells, all of his own bone marrow blood-forming cells have been utterly destroyed. If you just left him alone, and that person will die within a week or two. But this person obviously was rescued, as you need to be, with stem cells taken from the blood. Could have also been taken from the bone marrow, but at this point it was taken from the blood of this donor. And the donor replaced all of the blood-forming cells in this Berlin patient's body with his own donor cells. It was 100% 
Uh, that is, there's nothing that was genetically identifiable in terms of blood-forming cells, in terms of T-cells susceptible to HIV infection that looked like the recipient. It was all from the donor. As I mentioned, this was a very special donor who was selected. A Wall Street Journal article written about this case. The subheading was, Thank you, patient number 61, because of the 232 people that they could have used for this transplant whose tissue types were perfectly reasonable to give to the Berlin patient. They tested every single one of them, and number 61 turned out to have this mutation, Delta 32, CCR5, that would make the cells being put back into the body of the Berlin patient resistant to virtually any kind of HIV we know of. To answer the question, what if there's a virus lurking in this person's brain or hair follicle or fingernail or whatever you want to postulate, if that virus were to pop out from hiding, from a latent state, from dormancy, it would have been presumably prevented from taking over this person's body again and growing as if he had been newly infected because the cells that he were given from the donor was resistant to infection by HIV. That's the key part of what was done here. Some people don't understand how HIV enters the cell. Could you explain that and why CCR5 is important? Any virus, any bug that you get infected with only does you damage because that bug has to get inside your cells. If it's floating around, not activating anything, not harming anything, it's irrelevant. It's going to get washed out. HIV gets into critical cells of the immune system, the T cell basically, through two doors. One door is called CD4, and that's why we count CD4 cells, but the critical door is called CCR5. If you don't have CCR5 sitting on top of your T cells, it is virtually impossible for you to be infected with virtually all strains of HIV. So by having this mutant given by this donor, the person's cells were resistant to being infected with HIV. So you could ask, gee, it's a mutation. It's only in about 1.5% of of Caucasians, 4% of Scandinavians. Why is it sitting there? Where did it come from? Is it harmful? We know it prevents HIV, but surely evolution didn't create this mutation just to stop you from getting HIV 100,000 years ago or whenever it's perceived that Caucasians and Orientals separated from Africans in the cradle in Africa. We truthfully don't know why. The hypothesis has always been there must have been some huge epidemic way back when that was present in Western Europe and Scandinavia that didn't occur in Asia and didn't occur in Africa that wiped out so many people who didn't have this kind of spontaneous mutation. Therefore, the people that were left to breed, many, many more of them had this mutation. At this moment, we may never know what that catastrophe was tens of thousands of years ago that could have protected some people that had this mutation and led to the death of so many others. The Black Plague obviously comes to mind, but people have tested the bacterium that we believe caused the Black Plague in the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, and it's unrelated to CCR5, so we may never know. But anyway, it's, it's the key door for HIV to get into a cell. Basically, this mutation means the door ain't there. There's no way for the virus to get in. Therefore, it just kind of knocks around helplessly and eventually just dies off. I personally know people who were exposed to HIV repeatedly, and for some mysterious reason, they don't get infected. Have there been any studies done to see if those people have that mutation? Absolutely. It was one of the very best things that came out of a study that the government started a long time ago called the MAC study, the Multicenter AIDS Cohort Study, was to follow large numbers of predominantly gay men in six centers throughout the United States and just ask them everything about their lives and test them at regular intervals. And it was discovered that there were not a small number of men that were having unprotected anal intercourse 
uh, with people known to be HIV positive and yet absolutely did not get themselves infected over months or many years or a decade or more. Their blood samples had been stored away, and with their permission, these blood samples had been tested for the CCR5 mutation. In fact, some of these blood samples assisted scientists at the NIH to discover CCR5 in conjunction with scientists funded by AMFAR. The disappointing news is of if you take 100 people that are like that, saying they've had unprotected sex for many, many years and haven't gotten themselves infected, maybe 5% of them are explained by the CCR5 mutation. The vast majority of people, we have no idea why they're protected that are like this. So it could be another mutation. Most of us believe it's another mutation. You can absolutely bet there are many, many people uh, working through these registries trying to discover what those other mutations are. There have been a couple of hints, but so far, no slam dunk the way CCR5 has. And I think this is information that's going to be useful when we talk about cures and what a cure would look like and how you're eventually going to get there. It would be nice to have more than one avenue, and CCR5 is basically our major link right now. Hopefully that kind of research will give us other links. What tests were done to confirm that there was no HIV left? An article was published about this patient a few months ago in the New England Journal of Medicine. Just before the article was published, I organized a think tank sponsored by AMFAR at MIT's Endicott House, where we got together scientists from around the world, including Dr. Hutter, to talk about what additional tests could be done apart from what was done in Germany. For example, in the New England Journal of Medicine article, it mentions that before the transplant, the patient had an undetectable viral load. Of course, he was on drugs. When the drugs were taken off, he still had an undetectable viral load, but the tests that they were using are the standard kinds of tests that a person with HIV might get when they walk into a doctor's office, testing for less than 50 copies of virus and 20 drops of blood. One of the scientists that I invited to this meeting said, 50 copies per 20 drops, I can get less than a third of a copy of virus in 20 drops. So we had that scientist test the patient's blood, and it was negative. So there is no virus by the most sensitive ways that you could possibly look for a virus. Uh, what about an antibody test? There's antibody test that's very important. Of course, his antibodies would be positive if you vaccinate someone, say, against measles or polio and test them for antibodies. A year later, they're positive. Five years later, they're positive. But as you start getting on in time from that initial vaccination, and it's why we get boosters for certain diseases, the antibody levels fall off, and that's what's happening to this patient. The patient's out now about two and a half years off all his antiviral drugs, still absolutely no detectable virus, either active virus or latent virus. His antibody, we call them titers, but the strength of his antibodies are declining just the way you'd expect as if you'd given someone a vaccination against HIV and then looked at the levels of antibodies. They'd be very strong in the beginning, but as with most vaccinations, you'd expect them to weaken if you're not been re-exposed to the virus. This person, we believe, has no virus in his body. There's nothing to re-expose him. And so the concentrations of antibodies in his blood are going down. And I would predict in a couple of years they should revert to negative. When this article was written in the New England Journal of Medicine, Dr. Jay Levy, who's an outstanding AIDS scientist from the University of California in San Francisco, wrote an editorial. And the title of his editorial was, Not an HIV Cure, but Encouraging New Directions. In his editorial, the reason he used the title, Not an HIV Cure, is that he said that there's a lot of evidence from a lot of other studies that HIV can be, he used the word, lurking around in cells. Could it be in the brain? Could it be in the liver? Could it be in the intestine? Could it be in the stomach? This person, I think I mentioned, had a relapse of his leukemia and needed a second bone marrow transplant in an attempt to recure his leukemia. They used cells from the same donor that was CCR5 negative. 
after that second transplant, he developed complications of the transplant. The first transplant, he seemed to go through with flying colors, had a little bit of liver upset, which resolved. But after the second transplant, uh, he had many problems from the transplant itself, which are not unexpected in people that get two transplants. One of the problems was he started developing some mental changes. People worried, is it related to the transplant? Could it be related to HIV lurking in his brain? So he actually had a brain biopsy, and the brain biopsy was on top of biopsies of his intestines, liver, lymph nodes, his bone marrow, basically every part of your body you can biopsy, and the best part in answering the Levy editorial was including his brain, uh, and it's all negative for virus. There is no virus in this person's body out two and a half years off of all anti-HIV drugs, and this is certainly a functional cure in the sense of no need for anti-HIV drugs and no decline in your immune system. But I would say at this point, with all the tests that have been done at the level of sensitivity by scientists throughout the world that I've arranged to have samples sent to, that he's as close to a cure as anyone could possibly document, apart from if the individual eventually dies and he gives permission to have every single part of every single body organ tested outside of something like this, there is no virus in this person's body. That's amazing. Who were the 10 experts you invited? Uh, I think everyone would be curious to see that list. The first person was Sandra Bridges. She's worked on HIV from the very beginning and helps coordinate research for uh, the Division of AIDS at the NIH. John Coffin from Tufts University co-discovered this ultra-sensitive assay, which can detect less than a third of a virus per ml of blood. Dr. Mort Cowan, as at the University of California, San Francisco, has been working on the gene therapy of HIV for about a decade and is a head of a transplant program there at UCSF. Stephen Deeks, also from the University of California, San Francisco, did the baboon stem cell transplant probably about 10 years ago in an attempt to see whether baboon cells, which are resistant to HIV infection, could be used to help the immune system of a young man who had HIV. Dr. Garrow Hutter, who's the physician for the patient. Judy Lieberman from Harvard University has spent a long period of time trying to create animal models for a way that HIV might be cured and also herpes viruses might be cured by making cells resistant to infection by herpes viruses and by HIV using gene therapy. David Margolis is head of the Department of Infectious Diseases at the University of North Carolina and a long-term AIDS researcher. John Zaya is from the City of Hope outside of Pasadena, California, and he heads a bone marrow transplant program there. John has also been working for almost a decade on the potential stem cell transplants to treat HIV. Dong Sun An, who's from Irving Chen's group at UCLA, he's involved in monkey studies related to the use of stem cell therapies in animals as models for curing HIV. When we do these think tanks from AMFAR, there's also staff invited. So Kevin Frost, who's our chief executive officer at AMFAR, was in attendance. We always invite one journalist to cover it. The journalist was Pulitzer Prize winner Mark Schuff's. His Pulitzer Prize winning work was related to circumcision and condom use in Africa. That was a one-time group, or is this a continuing think tank? That was a one-time meeting, but because of all the follow-up we got, when I published my editorial in the AIDS Reader, when I published a commentary for AMFAR, which then went out on the web and then held this meeting, which went out on the web, I started getting calls from transplant programs throughout the United States saying they think they have an eligible patient from this. And so we decided, we meaning with AMFAR blessing, to form a core group of transplanters 
that would be prepared to greet the next eligible person that had a match to make certain that we had the best protocol to treat this individual. Some people from the group that I just mentioned are on them, but I also have additional people from Johns Hopkins University and from Harvard who have agreed to be on this panel. What's the status of that? Thus far, we had one and now an additional individual here who are virtual identical twins of the Berlin patient. That is 40-year-old individuals who were treated with heart for HIV for many years that unfortunately developed acute myelogenous leukemia and needed and got successfully treated with chemotherapy and will need bone marrow transplants. Unfortunately, there are two obstacles. The first obstacle is getting a match. The person that I was so enthused about here at our own hospital had no matches in the 13 million donors that we searched, adult donors, had some acceptable matches from our cord blood program. Cord bloods are using a blood from the placenta where you can get stem cells. The trouble is that because you don't get a whole lot of blood from a placenta and therefore you don't get a whole lot of stem cells, you often need to use two or three of them. And the statistical improbability of finding two or three exact matches that will also be delta 32 CCR5 negative are just astronomical. Basically, we cannot find matches for the individuals that we're presented with. The hope is, though, that somewhere we will find a match. Why can't you use the uh, people in Germany? It's a worldwide match. So the German registry is on our registry. You need two things. The first thing you need is a tissue type match that has to be exact. Remember, I mentioned that Dr. Hutter went initially through the way we all do, the 13 million people sitting in the worldwide registry, and he found 232 acceptable matches. Had he not been concerned about curing the person of leukemia and curing the person of AIDS, he could have used patient number one out of 232. Instead, he said, I'm going to call in all those 232 people. I'm going to test every single one of them to see whether they have the Delta 32 mutation, and I'm going to use that person if I'm lucky enough. And as I mentioned before, the odds, at least among Caucasians, and the vast majority of people who contribute to these banks are Caucasian, is 1.5%. So if he had 232, statistically, he was bound to find one, and he did. Number 61 out of 232 was not only an exact tissue type match, but had the Delta 32 mutation. And that's our second problem here, and that's money. Um, this could never, ever have been done in the United States first. It could be done in Europe because they have a socialized medicine system. No one asked the question, forget about HIV right now. If you have leukemia in the United States and you need a bone marrow transplant, most insurance companies will pay for 10 screens. Some of the more unusual ones might pay for 20 at a time. So you call in the patient's tissue type. You do a search through the 13 million in the adult bone marrow registry. If you need to, you can also go through the cord bloods. You come up with a bunch of them, and the insurance will pay for calling in the first 10. So you call in the first 10, and the likelihood that you'll find a person who is available is very good. Usually, we don't even need to go through all 10. But that's not going to help someone with HIV. As I mentioned, Dr. Hutter's patient had 232 matches. They could have taken the first one. He wouldn't have gotten to number 61. He wouldn't have gotten to number 10. Certainly not number 20 or 30 or 40. It took him 61 tries. They would have never been able to call in patient number 61 after having had 60 other perfectly good matches. Couldn't this be done on a NIH or academic well, study some, basis? So someone would have to pay for it. Calling the people in it takes administrative money. Doing the confirmatory typing tests, that's about $2,000 a pop. 
again, all this is free in Germany, then doing the CCR5 testing, which we could probably do in an experimental lab for maybe 5 or $6. What we really need is a new program for the bone marrow registry in the United States, if not worldwide, where we get permission initially to test for CCR5 in everyone the way we test for tissue types and several other things that are mandated. Because if we had sitting in our computers information about CCR5, we wouldn't have to be bothering calling them in. We would just do the search for free on the computer. What we in AMFAR are trying to do is raise funds to do CCR typing on tissues that are already in banks that are accessible to us. For example, at City of Hope, they have a registry of about 40,000 available cord bloods. They could all be tested for CCR5 if funds were available. There are many other institutions that have these registries, not all of which are actually on the worldwide registry in terms of cord bloods because it's a relatively new thing that could be tested. I think this will take some political will within the transplant community itself to add to the list of things that a potential donor has tested for, the CCR5 information, and that would be great if we could do it, and that's one of the things that we're advocating for it and for. How much money do you need to do this? To do the simplest things, that is just to test available cord blood stem cells that are available through these private banks like City of Hope. We're probably talking about, with administrative course, at most $10 a pop. So for each of those banks, if they have thirty or 40000 we're talking about $300,000 or $400,000 to screen all of them. So our listeners could donate to AMFAR to get this thing moving. They can donate to AMFAR and designate it for the cure. That would be one of the kinds of things that we're looking at, but I don't want anyone to think that if they give $1 that it's going to pay for, like, one person's testing, I can't guarantee that. It's basically to go towards these kinds of studies, like typing patients for CCR5, and like research into trying to move this out of just this one peculiar scenario to how do we develop this into a cure for everyone. That's the kind of research that AMFAR is talking about and that we'd like people to donate towards. What does it say about the HIV research community in general that this experiment was done by someone who is completely outside the HIV research community? The man's physician, uh, Jero Hutter, doesn't treat people with HIV. He's a young hematologist. It says a lot about our healthcare system. It doesn't say anything about our research. Everybody and their brother who has ever heard of HIV knew that this was possible and wanted to do it. I've had protocols available to do HIV stem cell therapies for almost four or five years. It's just what you need is the appropriate patient. So it's not for the lack of knowledge. Everyone was waiting around for someone who was HIV positive and young who then developed a disease like a leukemia or severe lymphoma or myeloma requiring a bone marrow transplant that could be transplanted. That person happened to walk in the door in Berlin that was the first obstacle. You had to actually find the person. And statistically, the likelihood to find a person like that kind of leukemia with HIV in Berlin, you should find one person every two years in Germany. I've calculated that probably we should find about 10 people every year in the United States just like that. I've already had three in just a few months referred to me. So we know those people are out there to replicate it. The second obstacle is what I mentioned about insurance and the way we screen people. In Germany, he was able to go through all of that because he didn't have to worry about doing the extra tissue typing and is the patient going to be able to afford it and so forth. And the patient wasn't even a German citizen. Amazing. In the United States, it's very different the way we pay for health care, the way insurance will pay for screening someone for something you don't need to screen for. That is, 
you're doing a transplant not to cure AIDS, you're doing a transplant to cure leukemia, it is perfectly reasonable for the insurance company to then say, we've had a long history, we know that just paying for the first 10 matches is all you need to do. And they're right. But if we're trying to cure HIV, we need to bring in everybody that's a potential donor to test them for the CCR5 mutation. And I haven't tested that with an insurance company, but I'd bet they'd look at it with an scant eye because it's an experimental procedure. And as you know, insurance companies don't pay for experimental procedures. What a tragedy that one of the impediments to the cure is structural. Right. But again, I should mention this is a cure for the one in a million person, but it is structural. That is absolutely positively correct. Physicians in the bone marrow transplant community are, are trying to work around some of these rules, trying to see whether we can get CCR5 testing added to the list of other things that people are tested. When you volunteer to be a donor, rather than just testing your blood type and your tissue type and tests for certain infections, what if they also tested for CCR5? It would add an incredibly small amount of money to the work. It's not going to do anything for the 13 million already in the registry, but for the next 13 million that volunteer over the years, wouldn't it be nice to have that information? It's something we're working on. Can activists accelerate this process? Activists can accelerate a lot of things. The last meeting that I had with this group of transplanters was in April. I need to see where we are and how far they've gotten, and then I may ask for your help. Great. So in your opinion, what is the most important research being done regarding curing HIV? It's how do we take this proof of concept from one patient and how do we do it on demand? The ideas are out there on how to do it. Basically, what you need to do is mutate this gene in every single cell that you're going to transplant into a person. What if you just took the person's own cells or the next available donor that walks in the door who happens not to have the CCR5 mutation? as statistically they won't, and genetically give them a mutation. Can you knock out the gene for CCR5? It's called genetic engineering. We're really good at doing genetic engineering in one cell. But the average person getting transplanted is getting a few billion cells, and we have to guarantee that 100.0% of those few billion cells all have their genes modified. We just have to take a few hundred or a few thousand cells make certain that every single one of them has that gene modified, and then figure out some way of growing them into billions of cells that we can inject back into the patient, and we don't know how to do that. Some of the physician scientists that I mentioned that I invited to our think tank in September are working on that. They're working on it in mice, and they're working on it in monkeys. And with current technology in a monkey or a mouse or in a test tube, you can knock out the CCR5 gene in maybe as many as 90% of the cells, but we need 100.0% of cells because if one little cell is lurking around there with the capacity to be infected with HIV and it starts multiplying in your body, that's the end of your cure. So I think it's partly a technology problem, and that's where research comes in. We know what we need to knock out, CCR5. We have people looking, as I mentioned earlier, for other things that might account for other people being resistant to getting infected with HIV. If we find those changes, we'll have another target to knock out. All we need to do now is to come up with better technologies than the small interfering RNAs and the zinc finger nucleases and the oligonucleotide reductases and the ribozymes and so forth, all these words of ways that we knock stuff out to get us closer to 100%. That's where research is so important. And I have a lot of faith in this kind of research. It's it's a driving force because it's going to be able to then say, let's just take cells from the first acceptable donor as if you didn't have HIV and let's knock out that gene 
give it back to you and replicate what happened in Berlin. Who do you think is doing the best research on a cure today in the United States or it, in Canada? It's happening all throughout the universities that I mentioned. I obviously sought to get the best scientists from the best universities, or at least representatives from those groups. As I mentioned, University of California, San Francisco has projects looking at this. University of California, Los Angeles has projects looking at this. Tufts University has projects looking at this. Harvard has projects looking at this. And so does Duke, and so does Hopkins, so do we at Cornell Medical. This is an important area of research that needs multiple people looking at it from multiple different angles, because none of those technologies are 100% accurate in knocking a single gene out in 100% of the cells. We need to come up with either refinements of those available technologies or new technologies. You need as many people working on this as possible, and that's what's happening. I've been in AIDS forever. I was actually first author on the two Nobel laureates' paper in the New England Journal of Medicine in June of 1984. Dr. Luc Montagnier and Francois Barre-Sonose's paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, Bob Gallo had his paper uh, documenting in a large number of people that his virus was the cause of AIDS. Dr. Montagnier had a paper documenting their virus is the cause of AIDS. With me as first author, I had gone to Pasteur with about 70 blood samples of young men that I'd been following since the late 70s. That was the group they tested their virus on. I've been the first scientific advisor to AMFAR since it was formed by Dr. Krim and Elizabeth Taylor back in 1985. And so I've seen all of this happen through so many iterations and so many potential hopes. Uh, I saw the miracle that heart therapies are, but we're not going to treat our way out of this epidemic. There's not money in the world or maybe even will in the world to treat every single person that needs it, although people are trying. What we really need is a cure. And with more and more people working on it, I think we're going to get there. If you were a betting man, what would you bet would most likely lead us to the cure? I think replication of the Berlin patient with a cheap, easily accessible method of doing gene knockouts in stem cells. I think that'll be the most widely available cure, but until you can do it in a person's own cells, it's just not going to be widely applicable. I started getting phone calls from people saying, I have HIV, I am so tired of being on these drugs, I don't have leukemia, I don't need a bone marrow transplant, but I want you to go searching for a CCR5 mutation for me, I'm going to pay for it, I want to be cured. And I have to tell them there is a tremendous death rate from this procedure when you're using not your own cells, but you're using cells of an unrelated donor. Upwards of 15-20% of people die within the first 100 days of the procedure itself. In other words, you only do that kind of procedure that was done in Berlin if the person's going to die from their leukemia if you don't give them that transplant. So someone without leukemia or any cancer is still Some, at risk Someone who for needs death. what we call an, a MUD, a matched unrelated donor transplant, is within the first 100 days 15-20% to 20 chance of dying. And it has the, nothing to do with their cancer. Having nothing to do with their cancer, having done with all that toxic therapy you fed into them, the radiation, the immune suppression, and the cancer drugs themselves that make you susceptible to infections and to other unusual immune disorders that basically kill you. And so that's why this is only done in attempts to cure someone from their underlying disease, not HIV, but their leukemia or lymphoma or their myeloma. Clearly, what a cure is going to look like is not subjecting anyone to anything like that kind of risk of death. A cure is going to look like, let's use the person's own cells to knock out these genes and then put them back in the patient to remove some of that risk of dying because the risk of dying after what's called an autologous transplant, that is using the person's own cells, is incredibly low on the order of 1% or less. So that's the way we need to get at this. Thus far, 
it's still at, at the level of research. So it's being done in the lab, not in humans yet? No, there are human studies ongoing in multiple places. If somebody wanted to join these studies, how could they find out about them? Good question. At the moment, individual universities are recruiting patients. There are cancer registries for stem cell therapies. I don't know whether the studies that I just alluded to are actually on national registries. So how is MFAR staying current about the Berlin men? Through me, because I organized the think tank to describe this patient and basically to help announce it to the world and organized having blood samples sent to physicians throughout the world to test. Dr. Hutter, as I mentioned, keeps in touch with me regularly, including just last night, because I've now become some sort of clearinghouse for other patients throughout the United States. I'm staying on top of it for AMFAR and for other people interested not only in that patient's progress, but anyone else that might be treated at another university. You said previously that he's doing well. Does this yeah. mean he's working? What, what is he doing? After his second transplant, because he had some mental status changes, which are now thought related to his transplant, he had to go to a nursing facility for a while. He left the nursing facility several months ago. He's back home. I don't know if he's back in his job. But as of yesterday, he's feeling well. He has no complaints. The confidentiality issues, there are certain things that I'm not supposed to know, and so I'm not certain they're going to tell me where he works, uh, but they might tell me whether he's working or not. So he's not interested in being interviewed or being public So I've asked that question. I've not spoken to him. The statement I was given is that he's considering coming to the United States and would be willing to give interviews at that point. Dr. Hutter will keep me abreast of that. It was supposed to happen in the spring. It didn't happen. So he's not giving interviews from where he is now, but there's a potential that he will give an interview. It's all very exciting. What can people do to accelerate this research? Support research. Research is the only way we're ever going to have additional treatments and eventually a cure for this disease. Stay knowledgeable about this disease. Don't let it fall off the radar map. I think too many people think that since we have drug therapies that are permitting many people almost normal lifespans, this is over and, and we'll pick up the next cause. And it's really not like that. There are serious side effects of the drugs that we have. If we haven't stopped this disease everywhere, we've stopped it nowhere. It's really important to eventually cure it everywhere. It's very important to advocate for the vaccine because we've never ever stopped any viral epidemic by treatment alone. It's always required a vaccine. And vaccines are going to be incredibly difficult to develop in HIV. So stay active. Make your friends and your legislators interested and aware of the fact that you're still interested. AMFAR provides grants to yes. researchers to right. continue their research. After the discovery of the Berlin patient, did AMFAR's priorities change and shift? Are you giving more money toward the cure now? The cure has always been a priority of AMFAR, so that one of the reasons why this think tank was formulated, the impetus was the Berlin patient, but we've had several requests for proposals based on the cure for many, many, many years now. So this is supported and fortified plans that we've already had in place that a cure is an important mission for AMFAR and that we should seek out more and more applications looking for ways to approach the cure. I'm not one to speak for exact dollar amounts and so forth. It's a priority of AMFAR is the best way I can put it. And AMFAR is meant to mean cure. And whenever our chairman of the board, Kenneth Cole, gives a talk about what AMFAR stands for and, and what AMFAR does, it's AMFAR is looking for a cure. 
is, is his line, and it's true. If we're having these structural problems, why not just have a lab in Europe do this work and AMFAR support that? I mean, why not just go where we could do it? Oh, AMFAR supports research throughout the world, in fact, in terms of looking for ways to approach the cure. A significant fraction of the grants we gave out were in Europe and Australia. We are totally international in terms of who we fund. But it's not the lab. It's the permission to get the patients in. Germany has a healthcare system to pay for German residents, not someone in New York City. The world doesn't work that way. You could ask the question, if I were a person with HIV and acute leukemia, and I couldn't get my insurance to pay to find one of those CCR5s, should I move to Germany, find out what their residency status is, and have my transplant there in an attempt for a cure? And you're also saying that you have the luxury to do those kinds of things. People with leukemia alone, forget about HIV, are often quite ill. You put them in remission, and then you're kind of a race to find an appropriate donor and to treat them. The person in Berlin had the luxury of waiting. It took three months from the time that they did the computer screen coming up with 232 probable matches to finding patient number 61. If the patient hadn't been able to hang on for three months, then they may have not found patient number 61. If you're sitting here in New York and you're ill, you may not have the opportunity to to find a doctor, to find out what residency requirements are, to meet those residency requirements. And by the way, you're hanging on by a thread, hoping your leukemia doesn't come back, waiting for them to find an appropriate donor. That's not the way it's going to work. If this is going to work in a system as rich as the United States, you have to go back to the discussions we had earlier. If this is a priority, then why not the next person that walks in the door volunteering to donate their blood or bone marrow, do a CCR5 test. Maybe donors would even be interested in finding out whether they're one of the lucky few that had this mutation and add it to the registry. So we don't have to worry about moving to Europe or waiting here, but it'll be right there in the computer system where I can access it from my desk. The way we access tissue type and blood count and everything else. So you're one meeting away from maybe this happening? No, I'm one meeting away to find out what's happened from the last meeting they went to when I've asked this question to find out additional impediments about why this is not happening and what do we need to do to make it happen. That's what this is about. And so if you call me in a couple of weeks, uh, I'll give you an update. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lawrence. This has been really enlightening, and thank you so much for your work in this area. I hope people listening to this will donate to AMFAR to help you continue your very important work. Well, thank you for doing this. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. You've reached the end of this month in HIV's program. To read the transcript or let us know what you think of this program, please visit www.thebody.com/hivmonth. <laughs>